All right, brothers and sisters, let's go to John chapter 4. We're going to look at these uh, last few verses, this last section in John chapter 4. And I'm going to try to read this. We'll start with verse 43 and go to the end of chapter 4, which sounds like a lot, but it's, it's not that much. So John chapter 4, starting in verse 43. After two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son. For he was at the point of death. And so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. This man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way you use it to show us who you are and what you want us to see and understand about who you are. Lord, I pray that during this time that you would just open up our eyes and our minds to be able to see and our ears to hear the things you are calling us to this morning from this passage. Lord, I pray that we would be engaged with your Holy Spirit in the mind and in the heart and in our souls and even to the degree in which it's possible with our bodies so that we would know you, we would love you, and we would see you for the richer, more beautiful Savior that you are. And we thank you, Father, for what you have done, what you're doing this very second, and what you will do. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Well, so here we are. Jesus is leaving Samaria after he spent time with the Samaritans and making his way back towards Galilee after having been in Jerusalem in chapter 3. And now he's making his way back to the Galilean region. And he's decided he's going to go back to Cana, the village of Cana, where he does his first miracle. And after this interruption in the trip to Galilee by stopping in Samaria at the well and the interaction he had with the woman at the well and then going into the village and spending time with the Samaritans there in the village of Sychar, he now, after two days of being with them, he decides to head on to Galilee. And then John, there in verse 44, inserts this 
kind of strange statement. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Okay, thanks for sharing, John. So Jesus is going to Galilee because they won't receive him as a prophet? Or you talking about the Samaritans? That's why he has decided to leave? Because they won't receive him? Well, that doesn't make any sense. So what do you... What are you saying, John? Because it's clear that the Samaritans really truly received him. They were like, we now believe you are the savior of the world. They even said it with their own mouths. So you can't be talking about them, that that's why he's leaving Samaria. Well, I guess he's talking about he's going to Galilee because that's his own hometown, right? Nazareth is in Galilee and that's his hometown. So that must be what he's talking about. But then... In the very next word, sentence, John says, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Well, that doesn't sound like you're not welcoming him if you're welcoming him. So what are you trying to tell us, John? So we can rule out the Samaritans and we can rule out the Galileans themselves as being the ones he's referring to for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own town. Now it's also true that when we read Matthew and Luke, he very clearly communicates there that it's referring to Nazareth where he grew up as a older child and a teenager that they don't receive him and that they can't believe that he's the Messiah because, well, look, we know who you are. We watched you grow up from a very young age and, we know all your brothers and sisters. We know exactly who you are. But that's not who John's talking about here. In fact, as far as I can recall, there's no place in the Gospel of John where it talks about Jesus returning to the village of Nazareth. So for John, when he says Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown, he's really referring to the Jews that the Jews are the ones who won't receive him. And that's exactly what we've seen in these first three chapters of the Gospel of John. It's the Jews that are constantly rejecting him. And yet while they are rejecting him, even here early on in John's recording of Jesus' life, the Samaritans, the Galileans, and the Gentiles are receiving Jesus. So it would seem kind of strange, right? I mean, well, to us, we're like, well, aren't the Galileans Jews? Well, sort of. You know, your mainline, hardline Jews in Judea didn't really look at the Galileans as genuine, true Jews. They looked at them as something a little less. In their mind, the Galileans were compromised. They had always been compromised. And that's why, because of their role with Herod and the Romans, they were the first ones to capitulate during the Roman invasion of Palestine. And as a result, the Jews, especially those who had family members that died during the first siege of Jerusalem, they sort of had a bad taste in their mouth with the Galileans. And so that leads to this sort of animosity that exists between Jews and Galileans 
in which they don't look at them as genuine, full-blooded, real Jews because they didn't fight the Romans when the Romans invaded. They gave up and surrendered. That's one thing. There were other parts of it too. Sometimes it just makes you wonder when you study the Jewish history, you just kind of go, look, you guys were just looking for a reason to be mad at somebody. And we've all had that experience, right? We know somebody who just is always looking for a reason to be mad at somebody. And that's the way it feels sometimes with the Jews and their attitude towards everybody else. So when John's recording this, he's looking at it and going, look, the Jews are rejecting Jesus, but everybody they think of as being unworthy of salvation are the ones receiving Jesus. And so this story, it isn't just that in the chronological sequence of events, this guy from Capernaum shows up to ask Jesus to heal his son. It actually fits in with the entire events of what happened in Samaria and the woman at the well. So when Jesus goes into Cana, the place where he had turned water into wine, his first sign, as John tells us, there was this official, or more accurately, a royal official, So who is this guy? Who is this man that shows up, this unnamed person? He was a royal official of Herod's court. Herod Antipas, the king of Galilee. He was a part of Herod's court. The same Herod who in just a short while is going to behead John the Baptist. Think about this for a second. Jesus, who knows all things, knows what's going to happen to John and he knows who's going to do it. And this guy shows up asking Jesus for a favor. Your boss is about to behead my buddy, my friend, my cousin, and you want me to do you a favor. So the other problem with this royal official is by many standards, he's not really a devout Jew. He's a compromised Jew. He's, he's, even for the Galileans, he's not really one of their favorite guys. In fact, you could even say that they would look at this guy as a cooperator with Herod and a cooperator with the Romans in the same way they would look at Matthew, the tax collector, as someone who's actually almost, they're just like this close to being an enemy because they're working for the occupiers. And so here's this guy. He's kind of on the outside edges of Jewish society, even in Galilee. And so what we see is that as a result of all these aspects, he is being a a member of Herod's court, a sympathizer and cooperator with Herod and the Romans. He starts to take on a status in the society that's much closer to the woman at the well in Samaria than we may have first realized. That he's really an outcast. He's like, not somebody we, you know, he doesn't get invited to anybody's birthday party, right? When you're going to have a birthday party, you don't invite this guy. Unless you're somebody in Herod's court and you're used to inviting these guys and hanging out with them. So this is really, this event with this guy from the Herod's court is actually a continuation of the same 
people that are rejected are the ones who receive Jesus that we see in the Samaritan woman at the whale story and the Samaritan village. That despite his social status among all the Jews, he is the one who believes in Jesus and his supernatural abilities. Wait a minute, how do I, wait, how did you get to Jesus? God believes in Jesus' supernatural abilities. Well, look at what he does. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son. This guy at least believes that Jesus has some kind of supernatural healing power. Most of the Jews aren't even sure that Jesus is fully human yet. They think maybe he's demon-possessed. But this Galilean official of Herod's court, that guy believes that Jesus has supernatural healing powers. Now, it's easy to sort of just assume that he had some kind of saving knowledge of Jesus and some kind of belief in Jesus as the Messiah. But that's not necessarily true. It's probably the case that he was just desperate, like so many of us are at times. His young son is laying on the bed in Capernaum, very sick, and he has enough experience with these kind of situations to know that this kid's not going to get better without something special happening. And he hears that Jesus has come back into the region of Galilee and decides, I'm going to go and ask Jesus to come down and lay hands on my son and heal him. In his desperation, he was even willing to do this. He believed in at least Jesus' ability to heal people. And that's probably all the belief he had at that moment. But that was enough. And so he goes, believing that Jesus can do this. And he comes to Jesus and asks him, and you don't really capture this, I guess, really until the later part of the passage, but Capernaum, there's two possible sites in Galilee for the village of Cana. And both of them are roughly 20 miles from Capernaum. So when this guy decides he's going to find Jesus and ask him to come heal his son, he's got to take a 20-mile walk. You know, maybe there was, you know, as a royal official, he might have had a horse available to him. But as we read later, it doesn't seem that that's the case. This guy gets up and starts walking to Jesus. And he makes the 20-mile uphill trek from Capernaum to Cana. Because the Capernaum's there on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, and that's 700 feet below sea level at Capernaum. And Cana was in the Jezreel on the north, well, depending on which part, which Cana you, it was the one. It was on the eastern edge of the Jezreel Valley, which would have been just basically at sea level. So he has to climb uphill 700 feet to make this trek from Capernaum to Cana. A 20-mile walk with, I guess, uh, let's see, as best I can recall, the uphill portion would have been about three to four miles. So he had about a 700 feet elevation change in three to four miles walking. I don't know about you, but if I'm going to have to do something like that, I want a little bit more than just a maybe that this guy's going to heal my son. 
Now, I know it's not the same. They were used to walking and everybody who lives in Capernaum understands that everywhere you go is uphill, both ways. But that's still a lot of effort. And he goes and he believes that Jesus can do this. And he gets there, right? Makes this long, arduous journey. It was at least one full day. In, in Palestine in that day, 20 miles was kind of like the max that anybody would walk in a single day. And so he starts walking, probably spends most all of the day. Maybe he had to break it up into two days. It's hard to tell. By the fact that he arrives at uh, Jesus to ask him at the seventh hour, which makes it 1 p.m. in the afternoon, it kind of sounds like he left Capernaum middle of the day, started walking, got about halfway there, had to spend the night, and then st- finished his walk the rest of the way there the next morning. So on day two, at about 1 o'clock in the afternoon, he finds his way to Jesus and asks him, Sir, please come down and heal my child. And then Jesus, right, imagine you've done this much effort. You're already torqued around the axles about your child who's sick. And you take this, you know, long journey. And you've been walking for probably 10 miles that morning. And you finally get to Jesus and say, could you please come down and heal my son? And he says this to you. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. What? I'm just asking you to come heal my son. I I don't And this is your response. Well, the thing we have to capture and some of your footnotes probably tell you this, that when Jesus says, unless you all see signs and wonders, you all will not believe. His response is not really to the man necessarily as much as it is to everyone around him. And what is this thing about signs and wonders? Why is that such a big deal? We had a chance to talk about this a little bit in the Sunday school hour. For those that were there, signs and wonders was the primary means by which Jews would validate a work of God and more specifically the Messiah himself. That's why everywhere he went, Somebody was asking you and Jesus would do something or say something that gave the indication that he was the Messiah. They would go, oh, oh, you're the Messiah. Well, give us a sign. Well, I turned water into wine back in Cana. Wow, that's in Cana. We're not, this isn't Cana and we're not them. You got to give me a sign. I don't care about the sign you did for them. I want a sign. Think about that for a second. That was their attitude. I don't care about the sign you did for them, folks. You got to do me a sign if you want me to believe. That's the kind of brashness that rubbed Jesus the wrong way. It's the primary reason why Jesus was always so frustrated with the Jews. You're always asking for a sign. Everywhere I go, you're asking for a sign. Here's the only sign you're going to get. When the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. That's all you're going to get. And so here Jesus says the same thing to these, to these people around him. It's, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. But this guy is desperate. 
You can imagine, he doesn't really care what everybody else thinks. He doesn't really care how much they believe or don't believe in Jesus. He just wants Jesus to come heal his son. And he knows that this is his last choice, his last option. Come, Jesus, please. And he even says that. Sir, you can hear, even though the punctuation is just a regular period in verse 49, you can hear the desperation. You can almost imagine that it was an exclamation mark in this verse. Sir, come down before my child dies. There's just something about people who are desperate when they meet Jesus for the first time. Some of us know what that's like to be desperate at the moment we are sitting and standing in front of Jesus. And here is someone who's like us, desperate. And what does he say? Just, Lord, help me. I'm asking you to help me. And what's Jesus' response? Jesus says to him, go, your son will live. Wait, you're not coming down? Nope, don't need to. I ain't one of them kind of healers. The kind where they have to be in the same room as the sick person and to touch them physically. I ain't one of them kind of folks. In fact, this phrase that Jesus uses, go, your son will live. It, this proclamation of life that Jesus makes over his, this official son, this royal official son, this phraseology is very similar to the ones used in the Septuagint in Genesis chapter 1 for speaking life into existence. Jesus' words echo those same sounds of let there be life. Speaking life into this young boy from a distance, like during the creation of life in Genesis 1. From the distance of heaven, he spoke life into existence on this planet. And now, the great I am who uttered those words then says, life will be into your son. And notice this man's belief. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. He didn't like try to negotiate with Jesus because look, I know, look, I, I know you said my son will live, but, I, but you really need to come down and touch him. Right? That's what I would do. Right? I wouldn't have enough sense to know if I was this guy in that moment that him speaking those words was all that was necessary. But his faith was sufficient to believe that if Jesus said, it's going to happen without me going down there to your son, then he believed it was going to happen. And he left and started about one o'clock in the afternoon walking back home, which means he would have had a 20-mile walk back home. Fortunately, this time he's going downhill. But he's still got a 20-mile walk, and it's the middle of the day, so he's not going to get home by dark. He's going to have to stop somewhere. My suspicion is he probably stopped probably in Magdala. That would be about the halfway point between Capernaum and Cana, and spent the night there. That helps us understand why 
it says the next day as he was going home that his servants came to meet him. His son started getting better. And so the servants left Capernaum to come find the royal official and give him the good news. And it says that in verse 51, as he was going down, his servants met him and told him his son was recovering. And so he asked what hour and he began to get better. And they said to him yesterday at the seventh hour, which was exactly the moment at which Jesus had spoken the words of life into this boy's body. So again, as in Samaria, Jesus speaks a word and it transforms this person's life experience. And as a result, they start telling others. And it tells us in verse 53 that the father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed. Wait a minute. It said he believed Jesus when Jesus said it yesterday at one o'clock. So now the next day at one o'clock, what is he saying? What does he believe? What's different? Right? Does it just, the man believed the word of Jesus and, and went on his way. And he says, and he, and he himself believed. What is he, what, what did he believe? He believed Jesus was more than just a faith healer. He believed Jesus was somebody greater than a prophet or someone greater with the gift of healing. He believed that this was the Messiah. And all his household believed with him. Just like in Samaria, one person's faith leads to an entire household of faith. Oh, and this is one of those guys that works for Herod. Oh, wait a minute. Remember what I said at the beginning? Someone who works for the guy that's about to behead my cousin is asking me for a favor. And Jesus gives him the favor. He does it anyway. Knowing what he knows, he does it anyway. But then again, that's no real surprise for us when we think about Jesus. He knew what was going to happen when he showed up here on the earth and he did it anyway. He knew the Jews were going to reject him, but he came anyway offering them life and eternal life. He knew that he was going to end up on the cross, but he came anyway. So this thing of this guy asking him for a favor that's nothing compared to what I'm going to have to do next. So he does it anyway. That's the Jesus we believe in, the Jesus we worship, the Jesus who is. He just does it anyway, knowing what's coming. He does it anyway, asking me to give me my vision back, even though I'm going to do stupid stuff with my eyes. He gives it back anyway. He pours out his spirit and gives us the joy of knowing him and worshiping him in spirit and in truth, knowing we're going to mess it up anyway. All the things, everything, he gives what we ask, even though he knows our messed up responses to it. I mean, yes, we do some good things. Sometimes we actually trust and obey. 
like we sang. And in his mercy and his kindness and his goodness, he doesn't need perfection from us to give us what we ask him for. He just needs belief. He just needs faith. He just needs, I trust you. That's all he needs. And in essence, even though the word trust isn't written here by John, that's what this man was doing. He was trusting Jesus at his word. And so do we. At the end of the day, everything comes down to trust. I finally come to the conclusion that every single thing that occurs in all of our lives comes down to trust. Do I trust you with what's happening right now? Whether it's a good thing that I'm really excited about and happy to have, or is it a not so good thing that I'm not so happy to have? Do I trust you, Jesus? That's the answer. I mean, that's the question that hangs in the air with everything we live with, everything that occurs every second of every day. Do I trust you? Sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. You know, we talk about, you know, God being, you see the bumper stickers, you've all heard, I'm sure you've all heard this talk, heard this explained before. You see the bumper stickers of God's my co-pilot. Well, that's because I don't trust him enough to be the pilot. And I'm delusional to thinking that I'm actually driving the bus or piloting the vehicle. He's actually in charge piloting everything and I just, just have the illusion of being in control. The truth of the matter is that he's really driving the bus, but I don't like his choices sometimes about where he's taking the bus and so I try to grab the wheel and take it from him. This guy, at least here, at least at this moment, he trusted Jesus with enough trust to believe him at his word and start walking home. And then when he gets halfway there or three quarters of the way, however far it was, he finds out that his son was healed at the exact moment that Jesus said, your son will live. And now his belief changes. See, here's the irony. I mean, do you catch the irony of this? Jesus is frustrated with everybody about wanting signs and wonders before they will believe. But the sign actually was the wonder that caused this man to believe. He believed because his son was healed. The miracle generated new belief. So this is all confusing. So... Am I supposed to want a sign or am I not supposed to want a sign? Is it okay to be excited about the miracle or am I not supposed to be excited about the miracle? What's the right answer here? Yes and no. Yes, I'm supposed to be excited about the miracle. And it's okay that my belief in Jesus increases because of the miracle. That's okay. That's actually part of the purpose of the miracle. And it's kind of okay to want the miracle as long as you don't want it too bad. Okay, sorry. As long as I don't want it too bad. I mean, it's kind of awkward to be perfectly honest with you this morning. This is awkward. 
I can't see none of you. You're all just a big blur. Well, I mean, not a big blur, but you're all blurry. It's not like you're all big and fat. I didn't know. And here's Jesus healing somebody. But so far, he won't heal me. Hey, I want some of this miracle stuff. Come on. Come on, Jesus. Come on, baby. Bring it. He says, no, at least not yet. So what am I going to do? What are we going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do when he doesn't give you your miracle? Which do you want more? The healing or the healer? When I said earlier that I'm thankful for the things he's showing me, that wasn't completely true. He showed me that I wanted the healing more than I wanted the healer, and I wasn't very thankful for that revelation. I didn't like that, really. Thank you very much. I'd have been happy to go on in my ignorance of that reality about my sinful attitude. But in his mercy and kindness, he showed me that's what I was thinking, and that's what I was believing, and that's how I was acting and living. So, one of the things I've learned with the difficulty in my vision is I really do want Jesus more than I want to see. It's kind of scary to say that. Because what if he really what if he wants me to really prove that? Okay, let's see if he's really serious about that. Do I trust him? Can you trust him? The answer is yes. No matter what, even if my vision never gets any better than it is right this very second, I can still trust him. I don't know what that looks like. Oh, that was a bad pun. Oh, that was awful. <laughs> I, I don't know how the future plays out if my eyesight never gets better than it is right this moment. Uh, but I can still trust him. I can't even understand why necessarily this is happening and why it never getting better would be a good thing. But I can trust him. And that's what he's asking all of us. I know a little bit about what's going on in most of your lives, but I don't know everything. And what I can gather from my time in the spirit with God, asking about what's going on here, I know this is a shock to you, but in my prayer time, I'm basically self-centered. I talk to him about me more than I talk to him about you. And, and while I don't know exactly everything going on, either you are in a place where you're having to trust him with some unpleasant things, or you're going to be. I mean, I'm not asking, I'm not, I'm not asking God to bring something like this into your lives. Okay, just you can rest assured that I'm not asking him to do something like this to each of you. But I don't have to. I don't have to wish difficult things on you. They're going to happen anyway. If I never ask for them to be brought into your life, they're still going to come because everybody has difficult things brought into their lives. Everybody. And when they come, can you trust him? I would just encourage you from personal experience to resolve those issues before the problems happen. 
It's a lot easier walking with Jesus in difficult circumstances if you've already worked out the trust issues with him. If you have trust issues with Jesus, deal with it now while there's not a problem because it's a lot more difficult when there is a problem to deal with your trust issues. So what? I wrote three things here last night and I'm like, well, I can't read them, but it's like, why? They almost seem hollow at this moment. When Jesus speaks life over someone, eternal life comes to them. When Jesus speaks life into someone, eternal life comes to them. You know, we all, everybody in this room, I know almost everybody in this room, we've talked about someone close to you or someone important to you that doesn't believe in Jesus yet. They still haven't learned to trust him with even the most basic thing, salvation. And we are praying that Jesus will speak life into that person. That he will say, you shall live. Just as he does when he says, I am the resurrection of life and anyone who believes in me. Though he dies, yet shall he live. We're praying that God's, that Jesus speaks that life into those who don't know him yet. And when he does, they're going to live. We all start faith where we start. This guy started with just a belief in Jesus that he could do supernatural healing. And he didn't really care whether he was the Messiah or any of that other stuff. At least that's what we think. And that's where he started. And it's okay to begin our faith in Christ with something that is less than a fully theological, robust truth. This guy didn't seem to understand Jesus was the Messiah, but that was okay. Believing that he could do something special that this guy desperately needed done and coming to Jesus then that way was good enough. We start faith where we started. And everybody around us and all the people we care about that haven't come to faith yet, they're going to start their faith where they are when they start it. And that's okay. You don't need to start out with a perfect understanding of who Jesus is. You just need to start out with an understanding that he's not just like anybody else. That's enough. And then lastly, for there's the element of stingingness for some people in this room to the next to last phrase. And he himself, meaning the royal official believed and all his household believed. I know many of you in your don't have a home in which everybody in your house believes that Jesus is the Messiah. And you read that and you're like, oh, I really, oh, that would be so sweet. I would just like for like once to know what that's like. And for those of us who are living in that moment, don't despair. Don't despair if you're the only one in your house who believes. It may still be the case that your whole household will believe even though they don't write this minute. I know that's my hope. We don't live in a household in which everybody in my house believes. But we still hope that we will one day taste that joy of seeing. A home in which all who dwell in this house know Jesus Christ, their Savior. Don't despair. It may still happen.
And as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, it may happen simply because of the winsomeness of the faith in which you live out in front of them. So don't despair. Hope and obey. Trust and obey. For there's no other way. I mean, that's the, that's the reality. It's not just a cute cliche in the song. It's the reality that there really is no other way but to trust and obey. Because we've all, everybody in this room already knows what it's like if you don't trust and you don't obey Jesus. We've already seen where that takes us. We've already felt and experienced where that takes us. So we already know that there's no other way but to trust and obey. And as imperfectly as we do it, I implore you, brothers and sisters, to believe that he really is who he says he is and to trust him, no matter what. Lord, thank you for your loving kindness to love us even though we don't perfectly trust you, to extend your saving hand and to redeem us from the pit, even though we don't really understand who you are. And we thank you, Lord, that you love us so much that you give us yourself, even though we don't fully understand you. In Jesus' name, amen.